Hello and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast. My name is Ryan and I'm your host. Before we get into it, I really wish to thank you for checking us out and giving us a listen. Obviously, if you are here and you're having difficulties with problem gambling, perhaps pre-recovery or you feel that you're at risk or just at a really low ebb, then please, please feel free to reach out. Trust me, there are plenty of people on your side, including I, along with my co-hosts Chris, Kelly and Kish. There are also many support groups available, including Gamcare and Gamblers Anonymous, among many, many others. We are all one big community, and so anyone who reaches out automatically becomes part of that family. There really is just so much support out there, so please don't suffer in silence. We're in it together. Keep the faith. Let's crack on with the pod. Hello and welcome to episode number seven of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Over these past couple of weeks, we've been overwhelmed with the reaction to the podcast, the All Women's episode, and last week, the Family Edition. On behalf of everyone here at All Bets Are Off, I would like to thank everyone for tuning in and sharing. The support from the community has been absolutely incredible. Uh, Today, I am once again joined by Chris and Kish, that's a mouthful. Uh, unfortunately, Kelly has been called away and is unable to record today. Chris, Kish, how have you both been? Hi, Ryan. Hi, Kish. Yeah, um, I've had a great week. It's Chris here. And um, really, really good week, actually. Thoroughly enjoyed last week. It's been great getting um, a lot of feedback, actually, because my dad was on the show. Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. It was a very special episode for me. Um, I'm looking forward to this week's show. Really looking forward to the guests we've got on. And uh, yeah, I suppose one thing to touch on is I wrote a new blog this week, um, which is on the Gamvisory website, which is quite an interesting thing to say because we've actually got Alex Macy on today, who is obviously um, from Gamvisory. So yeah. Yeah. Um, hi Ryan and hi Chris. Um, I, my week's been pretty good, thank you. Um, as I, as I alluded to last week, talking about my dad's and my own experiences for the first time was quite heartbreaking. Um, so in the past week, I felt quite, I felt like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Um, and the warm and supportive messages from friends and even from strangers on social media has helped me to realise that there was nothing to worry about. So in general, quite a good week for me. Brilliant. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Now, to get into the nooks and crannies of today's podcast, um, later on in the show, we'll be speaking to Matt Blanks about his gambling addiction story, uh, the work he does now with Bet No More, and hear all about peer aid. Uh, but first up, um, as uh, as Chris alluded to, we've been joined by uh, both Tony uh, Parente, for whom many of our listeners will recall, featured on the BBC Panorama programme in August last year, Addicted to Gambling. Uh, Tony has been gamble-free since 2017 and has since used his lived experience for the better, helping and supporting others in recovery. Alongside Tony, we've been joined by Alex Macy of Gamvisory. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one, so let's get into it. Uh, the panel have now been joined by Tony and Alex. Welcome, gents. Um, whilst I know a lot of our listeners will already know plenty about the both of you, there will be some that may not. Tony, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your story and what you're doing now? And for Alex, could you give us some more detail on you and the origins of Gamvisory? Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, I'm Tony Parente. I am a compulsive gambler. Been in recovery for be three years in September that I stopped gambling. 
I suffered with uh, gambling addiction for most of my adult life. Started off really at 16. Like I say, I've been in recovery for three years. Um, I found recovery for a number of, of avenues, treatment providers. Um, Gordon Moody was a residential program that I'm indebted to, to them for saving my life. Um, and what I'm doing now is, since I've found recovery, I've been trying to help others show that there is a way out of gambling addiction through GA, through voluntary work, and now through an organisation called Bet No More, who I'm working for, with a new service called Peer Aid. Um, it's a new service that's due to go live. It's all based around lived experience, and it's all based around trying to help others find treatment that's right for them. And like I say, I dipped my toes in and out various treatment and some worked and some didn't um, and that's what we'd like to do with the peer aid services about to go live yeah hi guys thanks a lot for having me on um yeah i mean a little, little bit of background about myself um i got addicted to the slots live in a seaside um town probably at age of sort of 10 11 um but it wasn't till when i became a police officer when i was 22 when i had a lot more money um disposable income that developed into a cycle of payday gambling basically i was losing my wages every sort of um on or around payday and that cycle continued on and off pretty much throughout my adult life and similar to tony i'm three years um three years clean now pretty much to the day actually i don't count um but yeah i i, I sort of came out of the the gambling through a combination of treatment that the police provided me and also a um a journey of sort of self-discovery and investigating my own gambling history so joining up the dots reading about the laws and legislations um completing numerous subject access requests and and just seeing that the the, the pattern was was actually that i was kind of exploited to be honest with you rules weren't adhered to you know and and what that did was ease a lot of the shame and guilt for me um, and it put me on a journey to where I'm at on now with Gamvisory, I guess. And that's trying to just similar to Tony in a different way, really, just helping people, getting the truth out there, supporting people. And obviously with the, the virus and lockdown stuff that's going on, it's taken a bit of a backseat. But there are plans afoot. And I think, you know, the subject access side of things is going to be a lead sort of um, a lead sort of um, part of Gamvisory going forward and, and helping people with that process. Brilliant. Uh, thanks, guys. And I'm, I know that we're going to be talking a, a lot about these uh, sort of things uh, later on in the show. The first topic that I really wanted to explore this week are uh, VIP schemes. It's something that we have touched upon, but we haven't really covered in any great detail on the podcast as yet. As for you, Tony, I think it's fair to say that you were the epitome of a well-rewarded punter. Uh, just how dangerous are these VIP schemes? they're extremely dangerous um in my opinion the vip schemes loyalty schemes they do target vulnerable people um i know that from looking through my subject access request like alex says he does and, and has gone through and and that but i do believe i was exploited you know i i look at the figures that i was gambling online up until that sort of point where I was introduced to a VIP manager and they started off quite small, you know, um, in respect of what I ended up doing. And, you know, I always blame myself uh, for what I'd done. And it wasn't until sort of I found recovery, cleared the clouds and was able to look at things a lot differently that there was an amount of accountability 
from the operators with this sort of stuff. You know, VIP schemes, I, I say they're mug, mug schemes. They're for the mug punters, the people that are losing money, you know, and, and, and being around that sort of environment at hospitality events, it was very rarely that you'd see an actual VIP or someone that's defined as a VIP at these events. Um, and I, I was, tar- you know, I was targeted. It, it, you know, I could go through the figures and the numbers and when I became a VIP and how they escalated. And it's quite scary, you know. Looking back at like 2011, I was, I was betting in, in an overseas country where gambling is illegal. And I shouldn't have been doing it, but I was because I was a compulsive gambler. Uh, my net losses was around about 13,000 in, in 2011. 2012, I lost around 20,000 pounds. The back end of 2013 is when I started earning more money and I was gambling more money and I lost 173,000 pounds. That was when I was contacted by an operator and a VIP manager and invited to an hospitality event in in Dubai, the Dubai World Cup races. Now, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just thought, you know, free tickets to the races. They offered me six tickets. I took like a few members of my staff. uh, And then I was introduced to someone that was going to be this VIP manager. And to be honest, we didn't hit it off right, right away. Uh, I've not got nothing against Northerners, but it was a Northern bloke. He drank beer and he smoked, and I'd done neither of them two things. But the other guy there was a guy from London. We supported the same team for our sins, and we hit it off straight away. So he ended up being the guy that became my VIP manager. And he just told me that things would be a little bit different. I'd be his point of call if I had any disputes or if I ever needed anything, he would be the sort of person to contact. So I thought, that's great. Um... He started saying that he'd start sending me regular weekly bonus chips and bonus money. So, you know, I felt I had to be loyal to, to this operator. You know, I felt I had to, you know, they were doing good things by me and naively I should just remain being loyal to them. And it was it was quite scary how quickly they got their claws into me. And also I ch- tried to, to, to utilise what they were giving me. And the following year... I lost 711,000 pounds. You know, that was the upturn in spike. Um, I was sent weekly chips. I was basically invited out on various hospitality days, you know, and and it, it escalated so quickly that this was the first time in my entire gambling life that I actually said to myself, I've got to slow down and take a break in that year. And I was get I was quite worried about, how my gambling had sort of spiralled. And that was in 2013, uh, 2014. And I took the break in August. So in eight months, I actually spent that sort of money. And yeah, they make you feel great. I felt great. You know, I felt great when I lost money and I got a percentage back of that losses. It made me feel good. You know, the gamblers in me like, well, I'm getting this back. So I've not lost it all. And there's a darker side to VIP schemes, you know. It's the manipulation. It's the sending you the money when they know your day off is. So, for example, my day off in the Middle East was a Friday. It's like Saturday in the UK. So my bonus chips would be in my account first thing Friday morning. They knew I, I, I didn't work Fridays and Saturdays, so I'd get my chips first thing Friday morning. It was a text messages, you know, are you okay, mate? Everything go out with a service. All these sort of things. It's a different way of manipulation 
and marketing and it worked you know they got my business they got my loyalty and, and they ended up getting my money and other people's in the end and it was just it's just it was a lot of the ego stuff i must admit um and i just thought well if these are the ones that are taking my money it's only right that they should be looking after me that was my mentality there you know that was that was the thoughts that i had and looking back on it i was always living in denial with my addiction you know it my addiction i was in denial till my last bet of 70 pounds it wasn't all the damage that i'd done before so i was i was clouded by this and um i was a grown man like even admitting it now it's really quite difficult to think that as a grown man as a husband a father of two that i could be led by that but i wasn't led by them i was led by my addiction but they were just helping and assisting that and people think how do you get to this vip level you get there by losing loads of money and and just being a mug punter and and, and that's the, the trips meant nothing the hospitality events meant nothing the only thing i've really benefited what i saw as a great thing was the, the cashback on my losses and that came when i lost more money and when disputes were there you know and that time when i took a break this would just tell you all you need to know about vip schemes i told my vip manager that i was worried and concerned about my gambling and i needed to take a break but the gambler in me still didn't want to let go I said i'm going to take a break but i'm not going to close my account august till january i never had a bet with anyone including this operator and i was sent thirteen thousand pounds and all i kept doing was going into my account withdrawing the money going into my account and why wouldn't i have done that they took 711 grand off me why wouldn't i try and get back as much as i could i got the birthday message here's three and a half grand for your birthday would you like to come over and watch a game we'll fly your business class at the weekend for the arsenal tottenham game all these sort of things. I just took advantage, advantage, advantage of it. But I never had a bet. I didn't bet, but have a bet. But I caved in. I caved in in January. And I caved in because they said, we're going to send you £5,000 for New Year. But you can't just withdraw this money. You've got to play a bit. Now, in recovery, it'd be easy for me just to say, close it down, forget the money, move on. But like I say, I lived in denial. I thought I could play a bit. And it was like... The moment I was waiting for that that green light to go again, because deep down it was a fight not gambling that that them five months, and um, yeah I caved in, and I gambled. I lost the five grand. The gambler in me tells me that was my five grand, but when it wasn't really my money, it was free. So my next deposit was five grand again, to get that five grand back. Then I'm thinking, well, now I have lost five grand of my own money. My next deposit was two to try and get the five back. I lost that quite quickly. We know how this is going. The next deposit seven. And within 48 hours, I'd done 50 grand. And I was back in action. And that shame, that guilt, that feeling, you know, it was like rough. And I just couldn't stop, you know. And they had done what they achieved to do, you know. What they should have done is close that account the moment I told them that and, and closed it down and, and stopped me. And yes, I may have gone with someone else because they're the questions people say, well, you would have gone with elsewhere. Yeah, I would have probably done. But at least you would have done what you were meant to do. Right. And um, like I say, no one held a gun to my head. No one made me do these things. But that's the danger of VIPs, because I know there's vulnerable people out there like I was, you know, that are still feeling the thing, things that I felt having the thoughts that I had 
and it's easy to manipulate these people because all you want to do or all I wanted to do was gamble so you know they're dangerous they're harmful as well as trying to help people I speak about things like this because there needs to be change there needs to be change with legislation there needs to be change with the gambling acts there needs to be change with the way the industry work because VIP doesn't care about a couple of bonus chips Thanks for that, Tony. And, and, and Alex, going back to what you were saying uh, earlier on when we talk about responsibility, I think it's all, as gamblers uh, here, uh, everyone bar uh, Kish, I think we all accept responsibility for our own actions, but we are talking about the, uh, the systematic, um, you know, preying upon the vulnerable. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on VIP schemes? Well, I won't talk about my own VIP scheme that I was in. I mean, I was a payday gambler, so I was averaging 1,502 grand. So I wasn't really meeting a threshold of a VIP, except when, you know, when it was my last period of gambling, when I, you know, I did 10 grand in a, in a couple of days. Um, but I want to talk about an ironic thing with Tony's case, because I'm helping someone at the moment who's stolen a vast amount of money. He was a VIP as well. So... Ironically, Tony was at events like Cheltenham and, and things like this with this other individual that I'm helping and they didn't know each other. And between them, they've stolen, you know, a vast sum of money. So that just goes to show the absolute shambles that that is VIP, really, and lack of accountability that's going on. Um, there are, you know, we look back 2014 from the Gambling Commission's, you know, one of their first ever regulatory um, rulings they made and it's all about interaction you know there, there should be interaction with customers that are displaying obvious harm markers and it it didn't happen back then and you know I'm seeing evidence as as is uh, the case with Tony and and cases much more recently that it still isn't happening so if, you know if there's if there's no accountability if, if companies aren't doing the right thing and aren't checking they should be monitoring everyone's account on an ongoing basis. That's part of money laundering uh, regulations. What hope have we got, really? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big one for accountability and it needs to be it needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. Yeah, thanks for that, Tony and Alex there. Uh, it's Chris here. And um, I find this really interesting, actually, because I was a VIP and uh, and I don't know why, because I was a very impoverished person. That's what I like to call myself, because I certainly wasn't special. Well, I'm quite special, but you know what I mean? Like I, all I was to them was somebody who lost a lot of money. And um, yeah, for years I might have bet with Ladbrokes, Bet365, all those guys and a little bit sports betting. But once I hit those casinos, I would lose money very quickly. And I remember, you know, 32 Red I'm going to talk about right now because it was them who I was made a VIP with. And, uh, and I wasn't made VIP next time around, but I lost enough money to be, I'm sure the next day if they hadn't, if I hadn't stopped um but yeah with 32 red there i was having lost an awful lot of money in a handful of days and i was a vip within a handful of days how can you become a vip you know i only gambled with them for a month yet i was a vip within days and um i remember losing so much money so much money you know they should have been saying hold on mate where's this money come from and it had come from me but that's not the point they didn't know that but equally if it has come from you mate can you afford to spend this money and whether I said yes or no, if they phoned up my asshole, my wife certainly would have said, no, he bloody well can't. What is going on here? But um, the interesting thing was that he's lost whatever it was at the time. It was, you know, it was something like 30 grand or something like that. And uh, there was the uh, email. Hiya, I'm your manager now, your VIP manager. And it is 400 pounds worth of chips in your 
in your account. So please enjoy them. Amazing. I'm thinking I've run out of money. I'm a compulsive gambler. Thank God I've got a way back in until I'm next paid. And uh, it's absolutely horrific. But the other thing I wanted to just touch on with the uh, with the VIP scheme here is if you are a VIP, they should be looking after you. Now, when I sent them an email which said I need to be self-excluded ASAP, they then sent me one back that says, oh, well, you need to complete these forms. Well, that's not helpful for me. I'm a compulsive gambler. And I've got that courage at that point to say I need to stop. And uh, it was then the next day I sent them another email. Oh, hiya. You got any free chips, please? And they came back and said, oh, are you sure about that? Because, you know, you we, you asked about the um, self-exclusion. But that's how they left it, because I then went back with an email that said, oh, don't worry. I've self-excluded from two other sites. Um, so now you're my favoured. So uh, don't worry. We'll carry on. And is there a bonus? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I then continued to beg for more chips. Sometimes they gave them. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they just gave me a bonus. But those chips kept coming. And that was, I think, I think that was on the 7th of May. And I don't think I managed to self-exclude myself until the 18th of May. And, you know, they should have picked up on that. I just, yeah, I just wanted to say, actually, it's interesting you mentioned 32 Red, because although my account with them was quite a, a time ago, 2013, I had exactly the same experience where I emailed them after a, a dirty gambling binge going into the early hours and told them about my problems. And they, you know, they said, you've got to fill this form out online. I said, I'm not going to do that because as soon as I click onto the site, I'm going to be encouraged to gamble again. Um, you know, and left it at that. They, and then a week later, they gave me, you know, a text message for 100 quid for free. And then I, lo I lost another grand. And, and it's just disgusting that they fall back on this. William Hill did exactly the same with my historical cases. It's just abhorrent behavior. And, and, it, and you, I, I, you know, I think to myself when I built my cases to these guys, you know, here's the evidence. They still don't take accountability of that because they fall back on the fact you didn't you didn't go back on the site and fill this form in. It's disgusting, you know. Yeah, it's when you say, Chris, about that, them free bonus chips and you, you try and win again. It's like all, all the things that you try to do when you, you know, a compulsive gambler. I recall, you know, it's quite evident. I'm talking about Ladbrokes. It's been publicised quite heavily and the Panorama programme was based around that. I was able to get a bet on when the race was literally a three furlongs out, it was a glitch in their system. And I put the bet on and it was £22,000 won. Now, I should never have been able to get that bet on. And I knew straight away that all I had to do was make one call to this VIP manager and moan up because the money never came in my account. And, you know, I told him, oh, I didn't know there was a glitch. There wasn't this. And, and, and he said, well, we'll give you 10 grand of it back, just like that. And I knew and this is the gambler in me. I knew that like I said, if you don't give me the lot back, I'll leave. He said, I'll call you back within minutes. Call back. The lot was in my account. It was gone within the day and, and another, another load of money. And, you know, why would they do that if they don't know they're going to get the money back? These are billion pound businesses. They know what they're doing. They're not going to throw money out that knowing that I'm going to withdraw it and walk away. And And this is the thing. It's you know, we've got to start from the beginning with this. I was in a, com a country where gambling is legal. They knew that. They allowed me to gamble. You talk about what they're meant to do. That It was only after four and a half million pounds went in and out of that account. They asked me the question, where's this money come from? It's, it's, now our, it's now the law to know where this has come from. Now, up, in this, up till this point now, I had committed crime to fund my gambling. And I was panicking. 
And within hours, I got the message back. Don't worry, mate. Sorry for the intrusion. This is what happened. And and that is appalling. And that is what goes on. It, it's scary stuff. Like these VIP stuff, like, it is scary. And they should be stopped. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, what I wanted to what I wanted to say, I, I do want to touch upon the crime and the uh, uh, anti-money laundering stuff shortly. Uh, now, uh, to provide a degree of balance, uh, there has uh, there is this thing that's now been introduced in which all under twenty fives are being prevented from being recruited to high value customer schemes. Now, I'd like to ask Tony and Alex for their views on how effective or ineffective, uh, they believe that this is going to be. Because for me, um, this theorizes that the older you get, then the more money you earn, uh, like you're on an upward trajectory. And I understand that is the case with most careers. And yet when I was in my early 20s, for example, I was earning good money and it took me another decade to reach that level again. Also, um, you know, it's horses for courses. I understand that the uh, that they want to keep your custom, um, and there will be, uh, but there will be a varying uh, degree of trigger points for disordered gamblers uh, wherever they fall on that spectrum of um, societal class or income. This, for me, um, like most things, means that all this extra due diligence, um, which is in place for the higher echelons of the gambling circle, which I think it's fair to say that that Tony was part of, um, whilst everyone else. Was receives the standard no frills version and uh, you know continues to slip through the net as we as we see on the regular my, my opinion on that is it doesn't matter what age you are what you're earning it's dangerous and I, I can take myself back I became a VIP when I was 31 years of age I, if I was given a treatment like that at 20 and not even on that level just free money you know here's a hundred pounds free bonus chips I had a gambling addiction from 16 years of age, I was in love with it. And from the moment I put my first bet on in a betting shop, if I was given any treatment like that below 25, I had a problem. It would have developed and enhanced my problem. And that's exactly what it done at a later date when I became a VIP. That's where it took it to elevations of my addiction, which I'd never been before in my life. It's dangerous. And that decision came or it was discussed, and I was part of the group that was discussing that, an experts by experience group, and it was never mentioned about age. That was a recommendation from the industry to the regulator in which this decision has been discussed. It hasn't been made yet. The reason why the industry make that is because they do know, like you say, normally the, the older you are, the more money you have, the more people have homes. I lost my home because of gambling. If you're at that trajectory of above 25, you might have assets that you can borrow against, lose against. The industry know that there's only a small bit that they can claim, but it's still harmful. You know, it's still harmful to an 18-year-old boy or girl, to a 25-year-old boy or girl, to a 45-year-old man. These are harmful things because it's manipulation, and that's exactly what it is. It's, it's encouragement, and it's dangerous. And uh, Alex, for, for you, obviously, I know we've talked a, a little bit, touched upon a little bit to do with uh, criminality um, in, in this space and particular VIP schemes that, you know, we spoke to Ben only a few weeks ago and, you know, his VIP scheme led him to criminality as well. And it, it same here, I, I, I stole and I uh, defrauded people. Um, and so it funded my addiction. And although I was um, a VIP with uh, with one particular site at, at one point, I was certainly uh, nowhere near the levels of, of Tony, that's for sure. But in terms of um, when we talk about um, anti-money laundering failures and, and 
KYC, know your customer failings. Um, tell us a, a little bit more about that and uh, just how much of this is going on, just how major are these failings? Well, I did touch upon it earlier and um, part of the money laundering regulations that have been in place for a long, long time now specifically state that there's got to be an ongoing monitoring of an account. Yeah. So how can we um, say that there's been an ongoing monitoring of our accounts, all of us here, when we have spent hundreds, thousands within short spaces of time? Because we know that that doesn't happen, actually, because when we when we ask for our subject access request, there's no evidence of this ongoing monitoring. And, you know, source of wealth checks are, you know, they, they've been around for some time as well in relation to what the extra steps should be for these companies to, to take when people are putting a lot of money in. So and it is, a, it, you know, it's a big problem. And I'm, I'm really concerned about what the Gambling Commission are doing about it, because like I know of two cases and you can put Ben's as a third where they didn't know that this crime had been committed until, you know, it turns up in court. How can that be normal and justified behaviour? Um, how can someone at the moment that has written to the Gambling Commission a year ago and told them he has stolen a significant sum of money and they have, they've shown no interest and basically told him, go and speak to the companies concerned. That's just not right. It, you know, the buck is stopping for me with the Gambling Commission's inability to do what they're meant to be doing you know and, and I think a lot of the problems we've got in this industry now and historically the buck stops with the gambling industry and the v, you know the VIP um, announcement basically was my trigger for starting Gamvisory because I thought enough's enough they're clearly not listening to people as Tony has said because he was in that room there was no discussion about over 25s I just thought enough's enough we've got to get some proper um, truth and accountability going. Um, yeah, um, so I've just been listening to all of that and uh, my heart's been sinking as you've been all saying that and um, I'm speechless in a way. Um, but one thing I did want to sort of touch on is, so Tony, you, you appeared in a panorama recently um, in yeah. 2019 um, and in that the Gambling Commission, um, uh, I think it was the, the CEO of the Gambling Commission said that he thinks that the operators have the data, they have the data available to keep players safe and that more should be done by the operators. Um, and what's interesting is that how the VIP schemes have appeared for you guys. And it's appeared as you've been sort of losing more money and you've shown yourself to be profitable to the industry, to the operators. Um, and then putting that into perspective of what the research is showing from the likes of, I think it's Jamaware, they, they, they've sort of found that seven, um, problem gamblers or people with gambling disorder are seven times, they lose seven times more in value per day um, than a non-problem gambler and that the number of gambling activities per day can be up to 20 times higher. And I, I've had, a, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm aware of some of your uh, records and I think that reflects that. So it's, it's quite interesting that instead of, um, you know, taking care of, of players, it seems like the industry and different operators, it's not just one operator, is deciding to put players onto VIP schemes instead of saying that, you know, we need to do something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've been, to industry I've been to the industry and spoken and, and shared my story and I've, I've heard it so many times you know we don't want Tony Parentes we'd rather have a thousand non-Tony Parentes but I hit I you know for me to tell my story and then hear so many others that have done the same and the, the reason I had access to a large amount of money is because of the job that I had 
and and what I'd done, and I abused that, and I abused the trust of people that were became friends, and yeah, I lost everything myself. But I I to sit with someone and then to say to me on numerous occasions, if I had that excess, I would have done the same. It was comforting for me because I just thought I was the only person out there. But the industry don't want to protect individuals. They want to capitalise on them because at the end of the day, they are a business and, and they will be sustaining their business for a lot longer than I'll be on this earth. And and they'll do it with me or without me, but it'll be a lot more profitable with the likes of me on their books. Absolutely. Unfortunately, guys, um, I'm going to have to intervene as it's now time to take a quick break. There'll be plenty of discussion and we'll be back shortly with more from Tony, Alex and the panel. See you in a sec. So here we are on a quick break. This is the part of the show in which I ask our listeners to go give us a follow over on Twitter. Our handle is at allbetsareoff underscore. You can also go and check out our website www.allbetsareoff.co.uk which has much more information about the pod and the team behind it. Along with that there are also some useful links to various charities and support services in this particular sector. It's now time for part two. Uh, welcome back. As you're all aware, we've got both Tony Parente and Alex Macy with us today. Uh, what an absolute delight and a pleasure. Now, let's kick off this second part with some talk on uh, non-disclosure agreements or NDAs for short. Tony, uh, can you give us an example of how these are applied by gambling operators and the reasons behind doing so? Yeah, um, I know Alex touched on it just before the break about the Gambling Commission. I, I actually went approached the Gambling Commission for help with what had happened um, and trying to recompense individuals that had lost out through my gambling. And they wouldn't help me, so they couldn't help where I was based. So I had to come back to the UK and get some legal advice. And when I got that legal advice, I approached all of the individuals, told them what had happened and told them that this was the only way that I could potentially get their money back. And it got to a stage of about 18 months worth of litigation with the operator, which was was Ladbrokes. During the back end of that litigation, I actually went into a residential program like Gordon Moody. And I think at the back end of my last two weeks, I was given my phone back and I received a phone call. And it was at this point where the individuals were in a room with the operator and their lawyers, and they were going to engage in a settlement. They had agreed a figure of just shy of a million pounds and they wanted me to sign it and unless I signed this settlement they would not pay these individuals they weren't prepared to give me any of my own funds back but they were prepared to settle these people that amount and I had to go out of rehab to 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 sign this agreement now I was really reluctant to do so I still had two weeks left on my treatment so I asked for this settlement to be sent and I saw the settlement, I saw the names, um, I saw what they were getting, and I saw my name on it. But when I read through it, the thing that shocked me most was that the fact that no one on that could inform the regulator, the gambling commission, about this agreement. And at that time, I thought, well, you know what, should they know, shouldn't they know, the most important thing is that these people get their money back. I was still living with guilt, with all shame, like all this stuff. So 
It took me a long time to sign it, though. I was actually the last person to sign it, and I didn't want to sign it. I actually tried to pull out and say, well, why do I need to sign this? But they wouldn't pay unless I signed. So I engaged in the settlement. I signed the settlement agreement, and the individuals were paid. I later on came on to break that settlement, uh, that NDA, and give it to the Gambling Commission because I thought it was right. You know, they're trying to put something that should be reported under the carpet and swept away. And I, I think, and they're probably right to think this, that I would never come out and say what I'd done because it's such a terrible thing that I'd done. And they probably thought I'm never, ever going to admit to these crimes. But I did. You know, part of it just sat wrong, wrong with me for so long. And that's why I broke it. I gave it to the Gambling Commission. And I think Alex will come in and say, you know, he was shortly after with a similar story. So, yeah, I was, I was, um, I was actually about a month before after Tony with the same company, GVC. Um, I built a case up against them relating to multiple failings with marketing, loads of different accounts with various platforms that they own. And also it was largely based on my fixed odds betting terminal gambling in store as well, actually, because I. I think my average was £800 spending in a coral and 1200 quid in a um, Labrix over a couple of years. So, yeah, but I, I got I got offered the NDA and, you know, I, I expected it to be coming. So it wasn't a shock or anything like that. But the same, I had the same thing as Tony. I had a stipulation where I couldn't contact the Gambling Commission um, about the case. Now, there's two problems with this. One is that as soon as a company is aware of a case such as Tony's and I, they are meant to report it. They're meant to self-report it. Obviously, the second part is that that, that, that by stipulating that we can't report it is is sort of an an aggravated offence on top of that. So I, you know, I told the company not signing, take this stipulation out, which they did. I signed it and then I passed it to the gambling commission. And I think in January, so two two months after mine and Tony's cases, they came out and launched a an advisory notice about NDAs, which was clearly on the back of mainly Tony's, but mine would have assisted as well. The only other um, dealing I've had with an NDA, well, I've had a couple, but what there was one last year and it was for 1800 quid. Um, I revisited the case because this company got fined in Sweden, I think. I got my money back, I signed the NDA. I had a bit of a debate about it with my partner. I thought I'm just gonna do it. Gonna have a decent summer for once with my daughter. Um, but the problem with this was, I mean, the case involved marketing offences and this company sent me a marketing text or email a month after I signed that NDA. And I spoke to the uh, head of operations about it for an hour. Just wasn't really satisfied with what he said to me. So I went on the radio and talked about it, breached the NDA. And remarkably, you know, this year I've had texts and emails from the same company, which is why I put it on Gamvisory and which is why I've asked um the gambling commission what is going on because you know these texts and emails don't affect me anymore but there's people out there that they do affect they do trigger and it can have catastrophic consequences for people and the gambling commission are ignoring this stuff and if they don't if they don't stop ignoring it you know pe- people are going to get continually harmed and it's you know it's got to stop and um alex when you talk about uh, earlier on you alluded to uh, sars uh, subject access request and you say that this is uh, you know, uh, uh, potentially a, a bright future thing. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit more about that? I mean, in terms of, does this have a, is, is this a, um, a thing that people do and then the NDAs are a byproduct of that, essentially? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I, I figured it out myself 
the detective background, um, you know, so I built the cases myself, getting the subject access requests. It's, um, you know, I'm helping people with the subject access requests at the moment, and I'm talking them through it, and it's a very delicate process. And I'm, you know, I'm making it clear to people that this is going to be a shocking thing. Um, and I'm making it clear to people that they need to have support with their loved ones when they go through this process, because it really, and I know Tony couldn't even look at this for a number of months, and, I, and there was someone on Twitter that said the same. But yeah, without that subject access request, without the raw material, and without knowledge of the rules, then you're not going to get anywhere. But that said, even even people like myself and Tony, and a few of us that do join up the dots and present cases, even even with lawyers, you know, they still don't take accountability. It's only a, a few occasions, and which is why I'm kind of torn about NDAs because at least at least they're taking some accountability. Do you know what I mean? And giving money back. Whereas other companies like Bet365 said they've never signed one, which indicates to me they don't take any accountability. Yeah, that's really interesting that actually, Alex. And uh, touching on the SARS um, subject access requests, I uh, I got some of mine end of last year. And like you just said, Tony didn't look at his for months. I was exactly the same. I got them come through because I just thought I want these. And then I very quickly opened it. I thought, God, there's a lot of stuff there and closed it. And to be honest, until maybe March, April this year, I kind of left it at that. Um, coronavirus hit and I had a bit of time at home and you know I'm feeling much more comfortable with that stuff now you know I'm doing this podcast on that and you know I'm trying to help other people and and part of helping other people is understanding what's ha what happened to me so that I can pass that message on just like you guys are doing and uh wow when you see the stuff it's just absolutely incredible I mean I put some stuff on Twitter over the last couple of weeks I put a couple of graphs on there um which was to do with Kasuma you know I, I I knew I'd spent a lot of money with them and I knew that I'd taken out a 25 grand loan on that last night when I was in that terrible kind of place where I was planning on ending it all and thank God I didn't um, and I knew I spent it quickly but until I looked at that SAR I, mean, I, I just couldn't believe it you know I opened that account I had that account with them for eight days of those eight days I spent money with them and deposited on four days now one of those days was only 500 quid I probably just couldn't get hold of any money I imagine it was kind of before a payday or something like that. Or I just wasn't brave enough to jump into those savings that I had aside because of the work that's being done on my house. I say brave, you know, it's not really brave, is it? But, you know, like I was I was managing to stop myself. But then I then then when I looked to what happened, you know, I spent it was I'm going to not be right on these first few figures. But it's kind of like I spent 14, sorry, 11 grand on that first day with um, deposits that started at maybe 50 pound. then went to 100 pound, then 200, 200, 200, 500. And then on the third day, I spent £14,000 with them. And, you know, that's absolutely mental. And the deposits were higher. And the amount of deposits, I did something like 21 deposits in a day or something like that. Then on that final day, in two hours and 11 minutes, I deposited £22,000 in two hours and 11 minutes. And I didn't receive anything from Kasumo. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Um, and it's when you look at the SAR, you actually realise it. You see it in black and white. You think, they knew. They knew. I mean, it's obvious they knew. But when you actually see it written down, you know it. And you see the conversations they've had in the background about, you're like, oh, you know, um, we better ask this guy for some stuff at some point. But, yeah, it didn't happen. Not till the day after. You know, they should have known from my erratic play that there was something not right there. That is not a normal gambler. And they should have they should have shut my account. They should do that to anybody, you know, um, on the anti-money laundering side. I know it was my money, but that could have come from anywhere. 
yeah, it's a it's a great point, and it is until your your head is clear, like that you actually see this and see, and this is why I do believe that gambling is a mental illness because it's insanity, and it's not just the numbers. Obviously, everyone focuses on the numbers. The thing that I looked at was the multiple of bets and the time, the actual time that I was gambling, and you know, first thing in the morning to last thing at night and most of the time it was last thing at night is because I had to wait for midnight to come so I could redeposit again you know sometimes that continued on to the following day and it's that time now take the numbers aside people know how long you've been on how long you've logged on how much play you've had there should be interaction irrelevant of the, the amount of money it's that time and that's the thing it was you know it, it, it's still hard to look at it's still hard to repeat them figures to you that I've re read today. And that's all come from my SAR request. And it's because it's, what was I thinking then? You know, how was I thinking? I wasn't thinking, I was insane. You know, this was a, an illness that just took over over my, my mind. Uh, thanks for that, Tony. None of us are, um, none of us are obviously, uh, perhaps don't know the figures in terms of, um, in, in terms of the overriding, how much, um, when we talk about, uh, you, you know, disordered gambling and how much money of that was, you know, from criminality, was from, you know, clearly very erratic, uh, compulsive, disordered gambling uh, across multi a multitude of sites and, and all the operators that exist. How much money do we think as uh, an industry has um, could potentially be offset through, um, uh, you know, these sorts of uh, SARS requests and such? So what I mean by that is, is um, are they scared about this? Are they scared about the proposition of uh, people really, you know, kind of going, hang on a minute, there are major failings here on our part. Are they actually scared about this? Are they scared of people coming to get their money um, for their failings? Not, in my opinion, not at all. And the reason why they're not scared is because the law protects them in this country. It is the only industry, as to speak, that if you fell on social responsibility, duty of care, failures under your codes and practices, even if you're fined by the regulator, there is no law to say that you have to pay for that. And 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 that's what needs to change. And that is that that is why. There's so many people, including myself, that are, that are helping and assisting with making that change happen because the law protects them like the law protected the PPI things and things like that over the years until something changed. And people are scared to take these companies on because they have a bottomless pit. And this is why most of the time they do get settled, but they dig their hills in and, and they're not scared of it because they're protected. The regulator doesn't make them pay it back and orders the law. And, and and that's where they're protected, and 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 that's got to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you're right, you're right in some respects, but um, Gilsey, you said something that that really rings true, and that is that you know there are people that have stolen that uh, a lot of money, um, but there are a lot of people like yourself, um, like many other people that have lost houses, that have got a vast amount of debts. And the fact is, they, you know, like you said, how do they know that that's not stolen money? Well, they're not doing the checks. And why aren't they doing the checks? Because they can get away with it. Because because they can get away with it because the Gambling Commission aren't regulating. And when the Gambling Commission do their token settlement, you know, one or two a year, they get fined, you know, the company gets fined a million pound or two. The share prices still go up the next day. Um, but there are rules, there are rules and there are uh, laws that, the, you know, the Gambling Commission could prosecute these companies in 
in a court of law could hold individuals to account. They've got the powers to do it. They don't do it. You know, the buck stops with them for me um, for a proper accountability because chucking these fines out over and over again means nothing. People don't get their money back, you know. And, and I spoke to you earlier, um, Chris, about Casumo that, you know, they were fined in the same period that your account was active. And we found that out this morning, didn't we? And I told you about it. Why haven't they contacted you? You know, why isn't there an obligation for you to be told you were part of this regulatory ruling? It's just scandalous, in my opinion. Absolutely. Totally agree with that, Alex. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's it's so funny that we had that bit of contact this morning and it wasn't until then that I realised, wow, this is about the same time as, 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 you know, my case was going on. You know, this is when I was gambling. And yeah, I've never been told anything, not even when the SAR came across. Absolutely crazy. Thanks, guys. Um, I think that pretty much uh, pretty much wraps us up. Uh, unless anything, any, anyone's got any any more to add um, in relation to anything that we've discussed today, or, or want to want to say anything more? That's all good for me, mate. Uh, brilliant. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Cheers. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I mean, this was uh, obviously a, an enlightening uh, discussion. Uh, I can't thank Tony and Alex enough for, for coming on and sharing their insight into things. The uh, the goings on in this industry and the seeming lack of ownership and responsibility of the operators and those in charge of governing them. All very clear to see there. Uh, after this very short interlude, as if by magic, we'll be joined by Matt Blanks. See you in a jiffy. We've now been joined by Matt Blanks. As many of our listeners will know, Matt took the brave decision to go public with his story not too long ago. And for doing so, he was named a hero of the episode here on All Bets Are Off just a few weeks ago. Uh, Matt, it seems you've joined a, a growing list of Bet No More associates to appear on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah. Hello, Ryan. Hello, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, you're right about the growing list of bet no more employees I was beginning to feel left out um <laughs> thank you for the uh you know the nomination for the hero of the week I, I was doing some work with Gamstop getting some sort of stuff out there to, to help people and I got put in contact with a lovely guy in PR called Peter and he's all for you know getting a positive story out there um something that can connect with people with links to help so, you know, he gave me the platform to, to get my story out there and, and it was all done for, you know, helping people. Brilliant. Uh, thanks for that, Matt. And uh, before we go on to talk about Bet No More and peer raid in a little bit more detail, I really wanted to take it back a little bit and learn more about your gambling addiction. Uh, we've all seen it. Uh, bookmakers I would visit would have staff hopping around to other local bookies to get bets on and so forth. And although I was, um, you know, friendly with a lot of the, the betting shop staff, I, I didn't know them well enough to say that they definitively had an unhealthy relationship with gambling, but suspected that many of them did. Uh, just how difficult is it to work in such an environment whilst harbouring a gambling addiction and for, for the length of time that you did as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll start off with my backstory, really, how I, how I got into gambling. Um, and then I'll kind of answer your question off the, off the back of that, really. But um, yeah, so I was 11 years old when I first started gambling. Um, and it was a difficult time in my life. My mum my and dad were going through a divorce. And 
my dad is absolutely everything to me and, and he still is now we used to do everything together we used to go play football go fishing you know I used to spend a lot of time with him and um, not having him there um, in, in the family home was really difficult for me and I didn't know how to manage my emotions and how, how to deal with that at that young age and he moved back in with his dad which was my granddad and of a weekend I would go over there and my granddad used to be set up the table with the sporting life writing out his horse bet and I just become inquisitive and started asking him what, what are you doing granddad and he started explaining to me about you know he's, he's writing out his horse bets and stuff and he asked me to pick a horse so didn't have a clue what I was doing just looking at names um, picked a horse and uh, it was a night meeting at Wolverhampton and I remember I remember going to bed that night um, and then I woke up in the morning news of the world hit the mat checked the results and what happened my horse won at 33 to 1 um, and my granddad had a couple of winners in in that lucky 15 and, and won quite a lot of lot of money from that bet so he gave me 20 pound um, so instantly my first experience of gambling at a difficult time in my life was a rewarding one so from then on every weekend my granddad would pay for me to have a little horse racing bet and we'd sit and watch the racing together and I used to go over there write out my bet and then I'd walk up the betting shop with my granddad his mates in the betting shop would be like, oh, here's, here's my grand, you know, this is my grandson. He's picked a 33 to one winner. I used to say, oh, who, who, who'd you fancy, son, and all that. And, you know, I, I used to enjoy that at, at, at that young age. You know, I felt on on a level par with with, with adults and, and I found comfort and excitement from from that environment. Be it, you know, seeing the horses run, the dogs and people gambling, money changing hands at that young age. You know, it something that appealed to me. Um, and then, you know, some some evenings, me and my granddad would play play cards together, pontoon, brag, you know, and we'd get the penny jar out, and, and we were gambling, you know, only for pennies. But but I was I was doing that activity, so really it, it was kind of the norm for me, um, and it was an escapism. It took me away from you know thinking about all the different things, um, you know, learnt behaviour really, um, and then. You know, going through school at the age of sort of 15, all my friends would be out on the playground playing football. I'd be sat in my tutor room playing cards for money with a few other uh, classmates. And and sometimes I, at lunchtime, I left I left the premises, took my tie and blazer off, went into corals and, and put a few lucky 15s on. I was in school on my lunch break. No one ever questioned me. Um so yeah, it's probably from the age of 15 I started betting independently, um, and then sort of at the age of 17 my nan passed away. She left me some inheritance to do my driving lessons. My driving lessons never happened. I had a thousand pound on a horse at Royal Ascot at the age of 17 before I was le that was all before I was legally old enough to gamble. Um, I kind of took the took the decision um, that I wanted to work in the in the betting shops. At the time, it was a dream job for me. I thought I loved betting. I loved watching the horses, you know, to, to be paid to do that job. You know, who, who wouldn't want to do it? So the week after my 18th birthday, I applied to a couple of operators and, and I got taken on um, for, with Labrooks. And three months, it, it took me three months from joining Labrooks at the age of 18 um, to train up to be a shop manager. 
I knew absolutely everything about gambling. It was literally just learning the procedures of how to run a shop. Um, and then, you know, I started getting friendly with monitored customers, you know, high staking customers that were, you know, placing big bets, was were getting, you know, big returns and stuff. And it's kind of from there that my gambling kind of changed because I started hanging around with these people and obviously they were all older than me and they all bet big. Um, outside of the shop, I started going racing with them, started going dog racing, horse racing. And because they were big gamblers, I felt like I had to bet at that level to, to fit in with them. Um, you know, I was taking out loans, I was taking out credit, I was lying to people, manipula manipulating people to, to get hold of money. Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it didn't really <laughs> change for, for, for many years. Um, you know, I ended up staying in the, in the gambling um, or in the betting shops for, for 16 years. Um, and it was just such a difficult time, you know. Um, I kind of I liken it to an alcoholic working in a pub. You know, if, if you're pouring drinks and you're seeing people drink, the likelihood is that you're going to end up having a drink yourself. And it's no different to a gambling addict working in a betting shop. You're From the moment you open that door, just turning the screens on, seeing all the horses and dogs running, putting the papers up, seeing horses that you've backed before, um, customers saying, oh, that horse is running today, Matt, you know, the one that you backed last time. And, and there's just so many triggers. Um, it's, 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 it's nigh on impossible um, not to, to, to get lured back in. And there was many times where I tried stopping. I wanted to stop, you know, willpower. Willpower wasn't enough. And, and I even used to sit behind the counter. I mean, I never played them FOBTs. They, they didn't interest me. Um, there was something about working out a race, going through the form, you know, you know, picking the winner. There, there, there was something more about that to me than, than just pressing a button. It, it, it done nothing for me. Um, and I used to sit there looking at all these people losing thousands in the FOBTs and I used to think, try and justify to myself, thinking I'm not like them. Um, you know, I haven't got a problem. I'm not like them. I, I don't play them bloody machines. I only back horses. But in reality, I was probably, you know, worse than them but I was in denial, um, you know, uh, through the years, um, I lost many relationships with, with friends, family and loved ones through my gambling. Um, you know, my, my relationship, um, I've got two, two kids and my relationship broke down with, with their mum through, through my gambling. Um, you know, that, 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 that was a really, really difficult time in my life. Um, from being similar back to my childhood experience, really, with my dad not being there, all of a sudden I wasn't seeing my kids every day. I was living by myself. Um, I was getting increasingly isolated, um, working long hours in the betting shops. And then, um, yeah, my, my gambling sort of spiralled out of control, couldn't cope with everything. And, and one night I'd come home and I just thought about Sammy Flat, and I thought about all the damage and all the destruction and, and, and all the people that I'd hurt through through my gambling, and I didn't think I could ever stop. And you know, unfortunately, I, I took the decision that you know the, those people and, and the world would be better off without me, and and I, I, I attempted suicide. You know, that 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 was my rock bottom, um, and and it was at that point, 
you know, thankfully it was a, a failed attempt, but it was at that point I really knew that I needed help. Um, so that's 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 you know my my backstory. Um, going into sort of your your original question, um, it's just culture. Any you know, I, I probably even if it was just for one day covering a shop through sickness or whatever across the whole of Essex and London, I probably managed over a hundred shops in my sixteen years. Worked with hundreds of staff that that were under me, um, and I'd say probably as high as ninety percent, if not more. Of betting shop employees gamble even if it's the you know the females just doing you know 49s irish lottery tenor in the machine or something generally everyone gambles and, and like you said they they go from you know you can't gamble in your shop so you have to go to a competitor um and and most of my bets was sort of cash in competitors and but that was only if i had another member of staff with me if if i was single man in for the whole day from eight in the morning till 10 o'clock at night I had no other option than to sit behind the counter putting bets on on my phone and you know even got to to the, the stage where I remember sometimes I'd had the first three up in my Yankee or my lucky 15 and I'm, I'm intensely intensely watching this fourth one wanting it to come in and I'm watching the race on the screen and then I look up in front of me and as a customer and I didn't even know that there was a customer standing in front of me. And they, and they used to say, like, oh, was you on that one? And and God knows, you know, what, what, what my facial expressions were like um, behind behind the counter. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's just, a, it's just a culture within the industry. If you work in the industry, you either like a bet or, or even if you join and you had no interest in gambling, within a few weeks, you... you you're working with people talking about it, doing that activity, you, you start to pick it up yourself. Um, and there was God knows how many, you know, staffed thefts, you know, money going missing out the safe, um, people, you know, colluding with customers, people changing stakes on bets. And I sat in on loads of disciplinaries with uh, staff and, and, and took, you know, notes and, and whatnot. And, all through sort of staff fraud and stuff and, and, I, and I, I knew these individuals I knew they gambled and although it never really come out in the meetings and some never turned up just handed their resignation in um, I'm you know 99% sure that most of the staff theft and all that went because people were in trouble from, from their own gambling. Thanks for that Matt that's a uh, fantastic actually that's just so interesting it really got me thinking I've got a question to ask me in a second but but first of all just to pick up on a couple of bits like when you said you wanted to uh work in the industry you wanted to work in a bookmakers it was your dream now I know I'm a gambling addict or in recovery but before that I was an alcoholic and I never worked in a pub but you just talking about that there I've got those feelings back I never worked in a pub but I'll tell you what I'd love to have owned a pub that mm. was kind of my thing own that pub get on the beers in the morning oh the dream anyway that's never going to happen now but but the other thing that um really got me there was when you said about um and this does lead on to the question when you said when you were on your own in the shop and you had to put your bet on in your shop because you had no other option and I just think that's amazing because like you're saying it wasn't a fat option that you wouldn't bet the only option was you had to bet in your own shop so I guess from there um the question that I've got is um was there any help available to you or other staff that had a gambling addiction or, or, or at risk to developing a gambling addiction? And assuming there was help available, um, has there 
been a progressive journey in the support on offer, you know, over the years. And I take it there's more kind of support now than there was when you started. Would I be right in thinking that? Um, yeah, I mean, from from the early days and probably up until I left, you know, even sort of two years ago, there was no help, no help, no support for betting shop staff. It was kind of deemed that you work in the betting shop, you know about GamCare, you hand out GamCare leaflets to the customers, you know about self-exclusion, you fill out self-exclusion with the customers. Um, so if you know these things, you know, surely you can you can you can sort yourself out. Um, you know, they, they, they were concerned about, you know, um, pr- protecting the, the, the license, you know, you, you doing that, that sort of thing. And, and we kind of did have responsible gambling um, training, you know, looking out for signs for customers and things like that. But it was very customer focused. There was no internal look from an operator thinking, hang on a minute, we've got 10,000 betting shop employees working in the shops. They all get, most of them gamble. You know, you, you know the national statistics yourself. God knows how many problem gamblers there are working out in the shops. You know, I, I, I dread to think. I, I know that I wasn't the only one. You know, a lot of my staff used to be borrowing money off each other, coming to me saying, oh, I've got a problem, you know, and, and, and I didn't know where to go, you know. And, and a lot of the time, because I was struggling with my own issues, I kind of just bat it off, really. And look, listen, mate, I'm, I'm sorry that you're going through that, but I'm going through my own issues. So I, I wasn't really, you know, susceptible to... You know, going, if I went back now, knowing what I know now, you know, it would be a totally different story. But no, not there isn't a, a lot of help out there or, or support for 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 betting shop staff, and and you know, I think there should be. Um, I do know, sort of, from the last sort of couple of years, um, you know, working with uh, gambling operators, helping them, you know, they're safer gambling teams and bits and bobs there are some employee assistance programs being put in place now where if a, you know a bench shop employee is worried about their gambling they they can call call that line but in all honesty um probably working in the industry was one of the reasons why it took me so long to come to grips with my addiction was because i didn't want to expose myself you know, you're, you're, work, you're working in an environment with cash, which is the company that you're working for. And if you expose yourself as a gambling addict and you cash up at the end of the night and you've made a mistake and the till's short, they're going to think that you've they're going to think that you've nicked it. Um, and that was why it took me so long um, until I hit my rock bottom was when I knew that I needed help. Um, but it held me back massively from from ever exposing myself. You know, I felt I, I could quite easily self-exclude myself online because it was, you know, either netline or or a phone call to someone that I didn't know. But everyone in the area, all the competitors, knew that I was a big staking customer. Um, I was a monitored customer in every shop in the area, and because people knew me, I felt like I couldn't self-exclude because. They would come into my shop and if I was on a day off, they might say, oh, is everything all right with Matt? You know, he's self-excluded. And then and then I've been outed then, um, so I couldn't do it. And, and there's a massive lack of understanding and I think there needs to be more awareness with, with the operators um, and the staff 
is, you know, they're sat behind the counter earning the same wage as I am. Could they be afford to? Could they afford to be gambling at the levels that I was? You know, I, I was betting in hundreds, thousands of pounds on horses. Um, they're earning the same money as me, and not once did any member of staff question me: Am I okay? Where am I getting the money from? Um, you know, uh, so I think there's a massive lack of uh, knowledge there, and a, and a big piece of work to be done. I think. Thanks for that, uh, Matt. Um, coming to uh, present day, um, can you tell us a little bit more about how and why you got involved with Bet No More? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it kind of leads on from from my backstory, really. Um, like I said, when when I had my um, failed attempt of suicide and, and I, I knew enough was enough, I that was when I exposed myself to my operator went through a little bit of a mini breakdown and I said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. I've, I've got a gambling addiction. This is what I've done and I need help. And they had met Frankie, um, who's the CEO and founder of, of Bet No More, at a conference. Um, so they put me in contact with, with Frankie. Um, so I called him up um, and told him, you know, where, where I'm at in my journey of gambling, what you know who I work for, etc. And he started supporting me in in my recovery. Um, he'd, he'd come down to Southend once a week, learn to see me and, and provide telephone support. And you know I, I was working through my recovery. You know I'd done a timeline, um, all the difficult events that had happened in my life, um, sort of interweaved gambling, trying to understand that you know the knock on effects of those those issues. Um, would sort of exacerbate my, my, my gambling issues. Um, I kept a full diary of my urges on a specific day, um, and I could look back on that and think, you know, oh, why, why was I nine on that day? Why did I really want to gamble on that day, but only a two on that day? Okay, there was no stress, uh, you know. Um, so yeah, it was really understanding my triggers was the biggest thing in my recovery. Understanding why I gambled. Um, and then I could put measures in place to, to combat that. And, you know, so so how I sort of come about working for, for Bet No More is, is obviously I recovered through Bet No More. Um, and then I decided, you know, I want to help people. I want to use my experience to help people. Um, you know, sort of 16 years in the betting shops, 20 years as a gambler, I've seen so much destruction um, and hurt, not only from myself, um, but all all the customers and, and everything. And I thought, right, I'm going to use my experience to, for positive, for, for good use. So Frankie um, started letting me volunteer for Bet No More. I would, you know, go to conferences. I would share my story. I would get involved in projects that they were running at the time. Um, I mean, that, that was in the summer of 2018. Um, and then... December 2018, I got taken on full time by Bet No More as a community outreach worker. I was working in the community of Newham, um, working with vulnerable individuals that were suffering with their with their gambling issues and, and how I was mentored. I, I would mentor them through, through their recovery. Um, I've done that for 10 months. Um, and then in October 2019, the peer service um, come about. Um, which I'm the the project manager for, um, and yeah, I mean that's that's uh, 
how I got involved with 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 Bet No More and and why I work for them now. All right, thanks for that, Matt. I think it was very interesting to hear about um, your recovery journey, and I'm sure that will be useful to many of our listeners. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, lastly, can you tell us a little bit more about how Peerade works and what's it about and what are its objectives? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Peerade is a bet no more project in partnership with GamCare, integrating a peer support model into GamCare's treatment offer. Peer support would be offered pre, during and post GamCare treatment with their GamCare therapist. We would aim to have a peer supporter matched up with a client referring into GamCare within 48 hours, as we know this window is crucial when someone reaches out for help. The role of a peer supporter is to inspire hope, keep the client engaged in treatment and guide them through recovery. The peer supporter would work alongside the GamCare therapist, with the first meeting being a three-way meeting with the client, the peer supporter and the GamCare therapist. At this meeting, goals would be set with the client and decided what the peer supporter and the therapist would work on. A peer supporter is someone with lived experience of gambling-related harm. We are looking for individuals with a minimum 12 months recovery that would like to volunteer and help others currently suffering. In return for donating their time, they would receive training, awarded a qualification, a level two in gambling peer support accredited by NCFE, along with support with their own personal development. They would be provided with a mobile phone to contact clients so they're not using their personal mobile and all expenses would be covered. Um, Peer support has worked well with drugs and alcohol recovery. At Bet No More, we are innovators. The organisation is built on lived experience from the top down. We were the first organisation to have an accredited community outreach programme and we are confident that the Peer Aid service will bring help to so many people out there suffering. Initially, Peer Aid will be a pathfinder in London. Once we have it established in London, we will look to upscale the service across the country. The service will be up and running soon. If you're listening in in the London area and would like to get involved as a peer supporter, email me, um, matt at peeraid.org, or message me on Twitter at mattblanks4. Thank you for that, Matt. And what we'll do is um, when the podcast goes live, we'll we'll put that into uh, our, our podcast description. So uh, and also tweet it out with the uh, with the episode. So really appreciate that. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and chat to us today. Um, obviously, you know, keep up all the good work. I know um, uh, Tony also spoke uh, very briefly, uh, touched upon it uh, uh, in terms of the peer aid as well, uh, which he's also uh, involved with. Um, unfortunately, that near enough concludes uh, the show. Um, obviously. Uh, to all our listeners, please stick around for our Hero of the Episode feature. Uh, a quick message from Kelly, too. Uh, uh, obviously, she's not here today. But uh, if you are sat here and uh, you and or one of your family members is struggling with an addiction to gambling, then please ensure you reach out. Uh, there are various links on our website. This is something uh, we certainly all echo here, too. Uh, until next time, thank you for listening.
This week's hero of the episode goes to Scott Davies, the former professional footballer and current professional sports facilitator at Epic Risk Management is now five years free of gambling, uh, which is just a, a really good achievement and all of us at All Bets Are Off would like to take this opportunity to congratulate Scott on his recovery journey, his openness about it and overall positive vibes that he shares. Thanks for being you Scott and well done.